This week on Q&A, Corey Pegues, former deputy inspector with the New York City Police Department. Mr. Pegues discusses his book, Once a Cop, The Street, The Law, Two Worlds, One Man. Corey Pegues, your book is called Once a Cop. What's it about? It's a memoir. It's my life story, detailed up and through me retiring as a police officer. When did you retire? Uh, March 2013. Officially retired. I was injured September 2011, so I was out of work for like a year and a half, almost two years. I had two back surgeries based on the injury. I was injured at work or trying to arrest someone, myself and my driver. I popped a disc in my back. At the time, what was your rank and where were you a policeman? At the time of my injury, I was a commanding officer of the 67 precinct. My rank was deputy inspector, which is an executive position in NYPD. In the New York Police Department? Yes. Let me show you some video of George Herbert Walker Bush when he was president in 1991 and get you to talk about this moment because you talk about it in your book. This, this is crack cocaine seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. It could easily have been heroin or PCP. It's as innocent looking as candy, but it's turning our cities into battle zones and it's murdering our children. Let there be no mistake, this stuff is poison. And you say in your book, almost right away, you sold that stuff. Yes. Why? I sold it because I was, you know, the environment I grew up in. I grew up with gangsters and drug dealers and pimps. And when I was young, I grew up on welfare. I was in a family of six, uh, five girls and myself. My father left after the third grade. It's ironic that in my book, Once a Cop, I have a picture of me in the fifth grade, and I'm sitting Indian style in the front, and I'm holding my feet because I have holes in the bottom of my shoes. I had cardboard in it so that my, my socks wouldn't get wet. So I had a rough um, upbringing, and I got involved in the streets and met some friends, and they were selling drugs, so it was like the thing to do. And I started selling drugs. We started selling marijuana. We sold some mescaline tabs, cocaine, and then crack cocaine came out, and um, we started selling that. So I was in the streets from the age of 13 to 18 years old, five years. What's the difference between cocaine and crack cocaine? Well, crack cocaine is just cooked us in rock, rock form. Like we saw in that bag? Yes. And what's mescaline? It's a pill. It's a pill, a little tiny pill that people take put it under their tongue. Back then, I don't even think they, I don't even know if that stuff is still around, but they used to do that back then. What's a Lucy? A Lucy is unlike what Eric Garner got killed for out in Staten Island. They, you know, he got killed for buying Lucy's. Those were loose cigarettes. The origin of Lucy's when we were in the street selling marijuana was a loose joint. So instead of selling like a nickel bag or a dime bag of weed and you would have to roll them up yourself, we did the rolling for you, and we would sell you a loose joint for one dollar. So it was a loose. You have any looseies, or you have a, a nickel bag of weed. So What's a woolly? A woolly was <laughs> a woolly was just a a loose joint, a marijuana joint laced with cocaine. Sprinkle a little in, a little bit of it in it. It's a hit. You got the high, you got the low. Who is smooth? Smooth was a very good friend of mine. 
who I grew up with. And um, he actually introduced me to the streets. And, you know, the ironic thing about him is he didn't really have to. So, you know, he had a two-family home. Mom worked for the telephone company. Father worked for the post office. House, car, white picket fence. And um, just because of the environment that we grew up in, there was a lot of people involved in the streets. And he just gravitated toward the streets, and he brought me in on the whole drug game. And started, I started hanging out with him. Why did you want to write the book? You know, I'm glad you asked that question. Nobody ever asked that question. You know what I really, the real reason I wrote this book for, it was for generations of Pegues behind me. My kids, my grandkids, great grandkids, I wanted them to know this life transformation that I made. And then it morphed into this book that I had to write and tell my story because I was put on the front page of a newspaper in New York City. And um, they really, like, took some shots at my personality, my demeanor, my character. They tried to vilify me by calling me a thug cop. So I had to tell my story. The backdrop, what people don't know, is I wrote my own book, and I stopped at walking across the stage, graduating. So it was like all this stuff I did in the street. You know, I was poor. I was in the street selling drugs. I went to the military, and I graduated became a cop, and it was over. That was the end of my book until this newspaper hit. Then I had to go through, the, like, my entire police career just so that I could, you know, lessen some of the stuff that was put out about me that was all lies. Here is the front page of that New York Post that I think you're talking about right there. And it says, I dealt crack as a gangster. NYPD honcho reveals, call you a thug cop. Yeah. When you saw that, what was your reaction and what happened as a result of this? And how did it happen? Yeah, it happened. Uh, my reaction to that, you know, I wasn't happy about it because I never was a thug cop. I did sell crack when I was out in the street. I don't know if I want to consider myself a gangster. A gangster to me is like a John Gotti. Like I wasn't out murdering people, putting hits on people. I was a street hustler. I sold some drugs. Uh, so I was a criminal. And um, it was really bad for my family. My family had to endure that wake up in the morning. Here, you know, there's a picture of me with the president of the United States in the book, maybe the future president, Hillary Clinton, you know, Michael Bloomberg, LL Cool J. I, did, I had such a fantastic life after those five years. And now, with me being on that front cover, it took all of that away. And it wasn't an easy time for my family. And I knew that I was never a thug cop. I mean, you know, the NYPD has a federal probe going on now where there's going to be numerous executives locked up and probably some lower-ranking people. Those are thug cops. I never committed a crime as a cop. I actually was probably the cleanest cop for 21 years. And the reason being, I thought that they were always looking at me because of my past, because of the way I came to work dress because of my tattoos and stuff like that. So I was so clean. I always thought it was a setup. Let's go uh, come back to this, but let's go through just some brief outline of your life. You were born what year and where? 1968 in Queens, a hospital that's closed, Mary Immaculate Hospital in Queens. Where did you go to school in those early days? In Jamaica, Queens. I went to PS36. I left there in the third grade. I actually got you know, kicked out for pushing the girls down the stairs, playfully pushed a girl, and all the girls fell down the stairs. So I had to go to 136, PS 136. Then I got bussed out to junior high school, 158. And then I went to Newtown High School for the engineering program. 
and invited some of my friends, some of my crackdown friends to come see me play basketball. And they had a riot at the school and beat everybody up after the game. I got kicked out of there. I went to one of the, the worst schools in New York City at the time, Andrew Jackson High School. And I ended up graduating from Andrew Jackson High School. What year? 1987. So what were the years that you were selling drugs on the street corner? So about 84, 85. I left at 87. And then after high school and after 87, what happened to you? Where'd you go? I went to the U.S. Army. I How long? It. Three years and eight months. And the reason I did a little bit long, my enlistment was a little longer because of Iraq won. That war we won in 30 days. My enlistment was up. So George Bush was the president, I believe, at the time. He extended everybody. So I had to stay a few more months. Were you actually on duty for three years and eight months? Yes. Active. A active duty in the National Guard. And then I was in the National Guard for 14 years. So combined, I got about 18 years of U.S. military service. So that takes us up to what year? 92, 3? 92, yes. March 92. Uh, actually, March 91, I got out of the military. In January 92, I went to the police academy. And then when did you, when did you become a policeman? January 13th, 1992. And how long did you serve as an active duty New York police uh policeman and and you will talk about what happened during the you know your promotions and all 21 that. years the 21 years as a new york city police officer i want to show some video of you on the street corner uh talking about where you used to sell drugs just so people can get a sense of what it was like this is my spot right here 198 of murder i spent countless hours here 12, 24, 48. This is where the drug trade was. All day, every day. There was nothing else to do but to sell drugs. It was cool, almost like a cool thing to do. So we had this whole, the whole park was, you know, the Supreme Team. So, like, I had this area here. I would have this area here. You got to understand, Supreme Team, all the lieutenants had different color caps on their crack cocaine. So, like, I might have the blue caps, you know, so I was here. If you wanted blue, you knew you came over here. Then on the handball court, there was another worker. Then we had a worker in the basketball court. We had somebody down here over by the baseball field. So it was, it was just crack all over the park. Who was buying? Oh, everybody was buying. When crack hit, it decimated that community. And, you know, I was one of the people that was supplying that poison. But everybody was buying. You had um, friends, you had family members. I had some family members that was on drugs. Uh, everybody, and it came from all walks of life. People that didn't have money. Uh, there was, you know, people that was pretty affluent. I was in a middle class neighborhood for the most part. You had some people, you know, nice houses and stuff. They were buying. Uh, you had white people coming. To, it was a predominantly black community. White people was driving in to buy. So everybody was buying when this crack cocaine hit. Everybody. You talked about the, the vials with the blue tops and all that. Yeah. How much would each of those cost? Well, it's funny. We had two vials. We had a small one and a big one. The big one we would call a jumbo. That will go for $10 or uh, $5.00. It's five for the little one, ten for the big one, or ten for the little one, twenty for the big one. Uh, How much did you make a day? 
Oh, we may. Uh, so now, when I've I, I worked two different places, I worked on my own. I was a freelancer where you saw that video we just showed. That wasn't with the Supreme team. Uh, a piece of that was. But I was working on my own. We was make $1,000, $2,000 a day. And I worked for the Supreme team. You know, there's, um, it's been written that they made upwards of like $200,000 a week. Who was the Supreme team? So it was it was a crew, a drug crew ran by this guy named Supreme. And he had, a, a you know, his nephew worked with him and he had a bunch of lieutenants, maybe about five lieutenants. And they had an Iron Fist uh, organization. And it, it was actually run like a Fortune 500 company. People don't, I don't know if the drug dealers are doing this today. Like we work shifts, 12 at night to 8 in the morning, 8 to 4, and 4 to 12 midnight. And we got paid on Fridays. Like it was a job. You had face-to-face relief. You know what the ironic thing with that was? We worked the exact same hours as the police officers. Like these guys were like some of these criminals out here. They could run Fortune 500 company. These guys were smart. They emulated the police department schedule, and they were so good that they started paying the police off. And I talk about that in the book. Did you ever get paid off as a policeman? No, I couldn't be brought. I was definitely afraid. I always thought it was a setup. So and nobody even offered me money. It's one time I talk about in the book where there was, we stopped somebody with the bag of money and he said, I don't know who money it is, as if to insinuate, take it, I don't care. And I was like, nah. Because I did the math really quick. If he got fifteen, twenty thousand 20000 there, I split it with my partner. I'm going to make a million dollars if I keep this job for 20 years. And this could be a setup for 10000 I'm going to embarrass my family. It just didn't work. So where would you personally get the drugs on a day-to-day basis, and and how much did you, where did you keep it when you were standing there on these corners or at at the park? Oh, well, back then, a lot of times we held drugs on us because the police weren't as prevalent as they are today. They weren't around. The ironic thing is it was... It was more police. It was like 50,000 police officers in New York City back then, and that's 36,000. But they weren't proactive. It was more of a reactive job. But we would just put it under uh, a tire well, stick it in a tree. But you would keep some on you, you know, so you didn't have to keep running back to the stash to hit the people. Or Obviously, you can't carry 200. You know, I would have the Supreme Team. I would have a package of two, 300 vials for the shift. You can't have that in your pocket, so you just lay it down somewhere. Are there Supreme Team members that are still around that you know? Yes. Did it ever, was it ever uncovered as who? By the way, in this book, uh, there are so many names. Mm -hmm. How many of those are the names, the actual names of the people? Uh, Only two people. Names are the same. Everybody else's name is same. And those two are? Supreme and Prince. Supreme and Prince. And who was Prince? By the way, when we saw you in that video, who was the other fellow in that video with you there? Smooth. Smooth. And tell me about. Yeah. Tell me more about Smooth. Smooth went on uh, to become uh, a high-ranking official in law enforcement also. People don't know. They'll find out in the book. Uh, yeah, so he changed his life. He actually went to, he went to Catholic school. He went to Catholic high school. And he went to a prestigious university, all while doing these things that I was doing. He changed his life and became a law enforcement uh, supervisor. And he just recently retired also. Here is the former mayor of New York City, Rudolph Giuliani. You have a few things to say about him in the book. This is only about 25 seconds. The mayor doesn't know why the 
morale of the New York City Police Department is so low. He blames it on me. He blames it on you. Bullshit! The reason the morale of the police department is so low is one reason and one reason alone. David Dinkins! You uh, affectionately call the former mayor a clown. Yes. Why? I worked that detail. I'll never forget. I you was, were there? Yeah, I was on the steps of City Hall, uh, you know, because it was going to be a big protest, so they had to have police officers there. And I'll never forget that protest. There were people, cops. These were all cops. They was walking around with nooses, signs with the N-word. Uh, it was bad. I felt really, really bad to be a police officer. It's probably the worst day. Uh, in my career being a police officer, I felt really, really bad. 1992. Yes. And the things that he was saying, and we just saw a little snippet, he was just riling, riling up. It was basically a major racist protest. That's that's just really what it is, if you want to call it. And you could just look back at the old footage. It's a bunch of drunk white cops <laughs> and a couple of white agitators, such as Giuliani, egging them on and saying these really nasty things about the mayor, sort of like what's going on now with the New York City mayor, a bunch of cops um, saying these nasty things. The mayor, then, the mayor. David Dinkins, was black. Yes. Yeah. And and he was saying racist things, as you're saying about right. what The was, whole crowd. What was the reason for him making that particular speech? Well, he wanted to be the mayor. He, he had lost the election to him. Mayor Dinkins became the mayor because he beat Rudy Giuliani in the election. And so now for the re-election, Giuliani was going really hard because he wanted to be the mayor. And, you know, with a few missteps by Mayor Dinkins, you know, the Gavin Cato Crown Heights riots, the Washington Heights riots, you know, he tipped the scale and he won. Someone else you call a clown is a man named Bernard, uh, Bernie Carrick. Bernard Carrick. Bernard Carrick. Former police commissioner. Yeah. NYPD. Why a, why a clown? Well, it's almost, it was cronyism at its best. Here you have a guy who had a police career. His only claim to fame as a police officer was being a detective in the New York City Police Department, which is on the same scale as a cop. And the rank structures, cop, detective, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, deputy inspector, inspector, chief, 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 chief. And he became the mayor of New York City, and he made this detective down here and brought him and made him the police commissioner, the number one person in this paramilitary organization, which is the biggest police department in the country. It, I mean, after having Ray Kelly and Bratton as police commissioners to bring Carrick, it, and, and you know, you can see, he just did four years in prison, federal prison, for, you know, corruption, taking things. Like, that wouldn't happen to, like, a seasoned veteran. You know me. When you're going through the ranks, you know you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. You, leadership don't start down here. You, 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 you got to work your way to the top. You just can't springboard somebody there because he was your bodyguard. So when Giuliani was running for mayor, Carrick was his volunteer bodyguard, and he won the mayor. And he made him the corrections commissioner and then brought him to the police department, which was the biggest joke in the police department. It's well known he wasn't running the police so department. So what was your personal reaction when Bernie Carrick went to prison? Oh, I I didn't. I was like, a, basically, I, he wasn't prepared for the job. 
that was basically it. In my estimation, it was like he wasn't prepared for the job. Since you published this book, um, you made uh, some people very unhappy. Uh, I want to run some video of the fellow that runs the Police Benevolent Association. You've seen this before and explain it. I th think this gentleman's name is Patrick Lynch. Before we watch that, though, tell us what his job is. He's the union president for uh, like 35,000 cops or 30-something thousand cops in the NYPD. So he's a union president. Right after this New York Post story came out, mm -hmm. talking... By the way, before we do this, the, the thug life thing, where did that come from? Um, I really couldn't tell you. But I mean, the, the tattoo is what I'm getting at. Right. Um, it, it just started as the rumor mill. Somebody said I had thug life on my neck, which I don't have thug life on my neck. And you didn't have it removed? I never had it removed. You can't write over writing. They would have had to laser, laser my tattoo off, and that would have a shadow, and then you have to write on it. It just don't work. If you took your pen right now and wrote cat, and you try to write dog on it, dog is not going to be legible. Same thing with ink. You can't write over writing. I mean, you will, I only could put a snake over it to cover it up. So where is it? I have a tattoo of my wife's name on my neck right here. And, and you've been married twice. Who's, which yes. wife is it? My current wife. Yes. Brindell. That's what's on your neck? Yes, that's what it says. And that's where the thug life thing came from? Yes. All right. Patrick Lynch runs the P Police Benevolent Association, and what did, were you a member of that when you were on When I was a cop? cop? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then when you're a sergeant, you go to the sergeant unit, lieutenant, you, you know. As you move up, you change unions. What was your highest rank? Deputy inspector. And what is that? And as, as you look at commissioner being the top, where does deputy inspector come in? So commissioner's about four or five ranks higher, but, you know, in terms of numbers, I probably in a, a department of 36,000. Uh, as a deputy inspector, you probably have 35,000 people under you. Okay, here's Patrick Lynch on the streets being interviewed in New York City. There was a headline a month ago about a retired deputy inspector who was on a podcast announcing that he once sold crack in Queens and that he once palled around with one of the killers of your brother. He never should be collecting a pension as a New York City police officer. His heart and soul, if he was palling around with drug dealers, if he had information about drug dealers that killed a New York City police officer. He never was a police officer. He should not be allowed to carry a retired ID card in his pocket. That's a privilege. It's a privilege to serve. It's a privilege to say you did serve and you retired. He is not entitled to that privilege. They should look back at his initial investigation, find out where he lied, pull his pension, and never allow him to be a police officer. What's your reaction? <laughs> See, that shows a major difference of a cop and an executive. Even, let's just say, Ron, I lied on my application. See, he's so not informed that lying is what you call perjury and the statute of limitations is maybe, maybe five years. So if, if he was an executive, he would know that. But he's a cop. He's just spewing venom. He doesn't have a clue. All he did was arrest people, take crimes. He never was in a policy-making position to be well-informed on what crimes are. Why is he mad at you, though? He's mad at me. Basically, he's standing next to Eddie Byrne's brother right there, who's a deputy commissioner. And that's the battle they're fighting. They're upset because I know the killer of Eddie Burns. And for, I explain for, so that in the when, book. When was Eddie Byrne? He was a cop. Yes. When was he killed? He was killed February 1988. I went to the military October 18th, 87. And who was the guy that killed him? There was three guys who's in jail for decades. 
now. And the the one fellow though that they're upset about that you knew, David McClary, and he's in prison. He's in prison. And, and so again, why would they? Is that just because that that's his brother standing right there? Yeah, Eddie Byrne. You I, know, for him to make such a irrespe- you know, and it, you know what really gets me? There's no pushback with the, with the, uh, the reporter there. For him to say I withheld vital information on uh, the killing of a cop, do you think for one iota of a second that if I had any information leading to probably the most infamous murder in the history of the NYPD, if my name was on any sheet, any pad, any, 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 any little sticky, if my name was on anything, do you think I would have been able to be a New York City police officer? It's no way in the world. I can guarantee you that if I was implicated in any any crime of a murder, forget about the Eddie Burma and any murder, and you know, find out where I lied at. I never lied on the application. Nobody ever asked me and sat across from me and said, You sold crack cocaine. That's not one of the questions on the application. So if they would have asked me that, I would have told them because I was scared. I was trying to get my life in order. I just got out of the military. You know, I just, my wife and kids, I wanted to do what's right. And I wanted this job because I knew this was going to be a life-changing event for my entire family. First-generation police officer, first one to get the high school diploma, first one to go to college, get my master's, be a professor. I was ready to take life by its ears and do what was right. And I wasn't going to say anything to jeopardize that. What were the circumstances of Eddie Byrne being killed? Well, he was gone. There was a murder. Um, there was a murder out there. The drug gang murdered a witness. One of the drug gangs that was, you know, pretty much friends with the Supreme Team. Somebody in prison, this guy, Pappy Mason, ordered a hit on a police officer because he got locked up. And there's this poor kid, uh, Eddie Byrne, was sitting in front of this house guarding a witness, and these three guys came up and murdered him. And you know the other thing about the whole Eddie Byrne uproar? is every year his family, after he died, they had a memorial. Um, I would go to the memorial every single year. I met his brother, I met his mother, I met his father. I met all of them. I did that every year I went there. But because I wanted to tell my life story of this transformation of selling drugs, and yeah, I knew these people, yeah, I carried guns, I actually shot at people. I did all these crazy things as a young kid, but I was never arrested and convicted of a crime. So why shouldn't I be able to tell my story? I mean. You know, every month the NYPD sends a few hundred checks to prisons for pension checks for people that's in prison. They want to take my pension. But I never did anything. And you make $135,000 a year tax-free as your pension. That's what what the publications say. I have a a tax-free pension, yes. And they want that taken away from you. They can't do it. It's impossible. But isn't there a lawsuit back and forth? Did you sue? Did you sue them? No, I have a lawsuit pending against the NYPD, Nassau County Police Department, for taking my guns in the New York Post for slandering me. I have a couple of hundred million dollar lawsuit that you know we're very positive. You know it's going to be successful because I didn't do anything. All I did was tell my story. Like I'm sitting here, I was on a combat jack podcast and I, I told my story I'm trying to get a book deal you know incite get as much excitement as we can it actually worked we got the book deal as you can see we got the book deal but I didn't know we was gonna I was gonna be on the front page next to Derek Jeter in his last three or four games <laughs> Combat Jack has a podcast yes what year did you go did you talk to him 2014 and July who is he it's a podcast. He has the number one hip-hop podcast in America. Uh, every hip-hop star 
goes on his show. Would you can name any hip hop icon that been on his show? And I was able to leverage a meeting with him through my lawyer, Ed Woods. He's my entertainment attorney. And they were law partners uh, one day. And he, he was fascinated. Combat is Reggie Osi is his name. He's fascinated by my story. And he wanted to bring me on. How long did you talk to him? About an hour, hour and a half. And that's the first time you ever told your story? That's the first time I publicly told my story. And so it was after that that the Post, New York Post picked that up and put it on the front page. Let's go back and look at that headline again yes. so people who uh, uh, may have tuned in later. There, there's the headline, Thug Cop. Now I want to run just a little bit of the audio from Combat Jack's uh, program. The first and, one or the second one? Well, I don't know. You'll have to tell me which one it is. Okay. Well, well it's, just, it's a brief excerpt just so they can hear what started all this that led to the book being published by Simon & Schuster, one of the biggest companies in the United States publishing business. A man from Hollis grabbed me at like 13. Me and my man Sean Dewan was like, yo, I need you to get these Lucy's off. The ironic thing, I think about Eric Garner getting murdered in Staten Island. Mm. For the record, you heard what I said, murdered. I'm a cop with 22 years. Eric Garner was murdered. And right. I want right. to get to That's that. what it was, and right. we'll get to that. Yeah. So at 13, I'm selling Lucy's, but you know what the Lucy's was back then? Right. There right. wasn't cigarettes. The Lucy's was the joints. Know, loose joints. Yeah. Exactly. So explain more of that, what you were talking about there. We was talking about like what you asked me about the Lucy's. Well, in the industries they call them they call them joints, but it was marijuana cigarettes for the most part. But the murder, the accusation of murder, what's that story? In case people weren't following it that closely, Eric Garner. The Eric Garner incident. Yeah, Eric Garner was a, a young man in Staten Island who was trying to sell loose cigarettes, untaxed cigarettes. He was selling untaxed cigarettes allegedly in front of a, a, a store out in Staten Island. The police responded to the location and pretty much was going to arrest him. He didn't want to go at the time. It's all on video. He had a little bit of pushback. Was it enough for him to be murdered? I doubt it. Enough for him to be arrested? I strongly reject that, too. And um, he ended up being choked out and, and killed. I mean, the medical examiner said, I was the first person to naturally say this guy was murdered. You can check that Combat Jack interview. I called it a murder because I knew that... Uh, you know, the NYPD, it was legal to do a chokehold. And he died by asphyxiation. The medical examiner said it was a homicide. Is that what's making the, the uh, Benevolent Association mad? Oh, they was very... You have to understand, this blue wall of silence is a serious thing. Blue wall of silence, one of your chapters in the book. It's real serious. It's like, I'm my brother's keeper. Whatever you say, I'm going to go I'm gonna go with. Don't worry. We'll make the story up. We'll make it fit. And I never was a part of that. So for me to come out and say that a cop murdered somebody, um, they didn't take that too lightly. You know, you, you triggered another memory from reading your book. A guy named O'Rourke and, and uh, Greeley. You have some strong things to say about... Are they both Irish? Yes. You have some strong things to say about Irish uh, cops in here. Explain that. Oh, yeah. Well, I had some strong things to say about Irish cops back when I was a cop because it was the old... It was still an old guard. You know, these guys were like... Um, I came in 92, so these guys was like 17, 18 years. They was coming in... 
the late seventies, early eighties, and they was getting ham. They was second, third generation. Remember my first generation. So these guys were coming in, and um, they had a lot of racist tendencies. Like they wouldn't even speak to me. Some of them, the Irish cops wouldn't even speak to me when I, I would walk in a room full of cops and say, "Hey guys, how's everybody doing?" They look at me um, like I didn't exist. You know, I write one story in there about I'm sitting in the lunchroom by myself watching television eating my lunch and a tall Irish guy with 20 years comes in and just turns the TV off right in front of me and I flipped the table over and I was gonna, me and him was going to have a big fight and everybody had to run in to break us up. It was so nasty and disrespectful. He'd been there 20 years Yes. and you'd been there how long? About two. You were watching television. Yes. He comes in doesn't ask you anything, just turns the television Just off. turns it right off. But it wasn't like the first thing he did to me, you know. Like, they would use the N-word loosely. You know, this is 92. You thought, you know, it was a little change, but they were still doing I was in a predominantly white precinct in the story, the 114th precinct. It was maybe 300 cops. And I'll never forget, it was only 28 blacks. It was only 28 blacks, and that was spread across uh, the tours, the different tours. So on my tour from four to midnight, it was about four. I can remember the names. It was about four of us. So, you know, it was tough. So how did you see racism? As a Besides police officer? this story you just told, yeah. Well, give us some other examples. Oh, there was a lot of examples I could give you. Most of it was like, you know, promotions, assignments. Um, just, you know, I talk about putting in papers to go to this elite unit with my partner who graduated the same day as I did. Was he white? He's Italian. Yes, he's Italian. I get the letter back. They say, you, we had two years on a job. They put big red letters. Say, you need three years to apply. We go to roll call, and they call him at the roll call, and they say, you got 20 minutes to go down for your interview for the test. And he was a really nice guy. And he came to me. He almost had tears in his eyes. He was like, Corey, I'm sorry. And I was like, don't worry about it. It's good. Do good on your interview. And he ended up going to that elite unit. So I was seeing things very early on. Like, we got 9 millimeters. The police, Bratton came and gave us 9 millimeters. Um, so I had a few years on the job. 9 millimeter gun. 9 millimeter handguns. We went from the 38s. And it was supposed to go by seniority, seniority, get it. But all the white guys that was under me with less time, they got theirs first. And I had to wait in line to get mine. Um, there was a lot of things. But all that stuff made me strong and wanted to get promoted, to be the boss. Because, you know, one thing that can stop racism is being in charge. And when you're in charge, they don't have to like you. But it's power military organization. I tell you to move, you do it. I don't care what your feelings are. So I knew if I was the boss, I could make change. You mentioned your lawyer earlier. How much did your lawyer have to approve in this book? Well, not that attorney. Simon & Schuster, well, Atria Imprint, you know, it's a, it's a billion-dollar company. They have a whole staff of lawyers. So that book has been heavily vetted. I mean, we had to go back and forth on names, places. No, you got to take this out, take that out. So many drafts on the book, heavily vetted. How did you, how did you do the book? How did you actually put words on paper? Well, believe it or not, when I got injured September 2011, and I had a major surgery. I had two back surgeries. And um, I knew I would never be a police officer again because you have to be full duty. Like, even if you're the boss, like, you got to be able to run and jump a fence if somebody's chasing you down the block. And if you get hurt while you had that surgery, obviously going to be liability for the city. So they're not going to let you work again, except for exceptions. Some people, they do. And I knew I wasn't one of those exceptions. So I started writing my story in the hospital bed. Did you write this all yourself or did I you wrote. talk it? I wrote my own. I wrote my own story. 
I, I walked into Simon & Schuster with a script like this. Date books, a big stack of date books. I don't have that picture in the book. I really should have had that picture in the book. So what people don't know is I kept a journal every year. Red books. After the break, I'll show you on my phone. I kept a journal every single year as a police officer. And I wrote down. I didn't write every day. Sometimes I didn't write every week. Sometimes I didn't write every month. But there were stories. The Greeley story. The Giuliani story. All of these stories in the book, I wrote them already. So when I walked to the Simon & Schuster with my book agent, and we sat down with Hopper Collins and everybody, they was looking like, wow, you wrote all of that stuff in there? And you wrote your own manuscript? It was already a sealed deal. I already wrote this. The book was written. Let me read something. We're jumping a bit all over the place, but your book is so full of things that I want to get to as much as we can. Let me just read back to you what you wrote and tell us the circumstances. By the time they pulled the guy off of me, I was hot. I was seeing red. I was covered in cuts and scrapes. This guy's blood all over me. We cuffed him, and I went to walk him out to the patrol car. At the top of the stairs, he stumbled and slipped out of my hand. I didn't push him, but I didn't try to catch him either. I let him fall, and he went down the stairs handcuffed, head first. Boom, 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 boom. Why did you tell us that story? Because I wanted to be transparent and reveal. It's the worst thing I ever did as a police officer. That's the worst thing. I could have killed a handcuffed prisoner by not securing him. And that taught me right then at that moment, it's almost like the Abner Louima incident in the 7-0 precinct years ago when they took the stick, the nightstick, and stuck it up inside of him. Whenever you're involved personally with a prisoner and it's, it goes south where you're fighting and stuff, once it's over, somebody else should be the common figure to come in. You sit to the side, let them, because they didn't have any interaction with the person. I learned from that day, if I have a fight with somebody, I got to let somebody else take the arrest. I was just happy that the guy didn't die. And you didn't read the, the best part of that is, it wasn't good at the time, he was HIV positive. I had to do testing for a whole year. Uh, define some of these things in the book uh, that you wrote. And this goes back to your earlier life. What's how fly we were? What does that mean? We look good. We could give a lesson on slang. Great, let's do it. How fly we were, that means how good we looked. What's good shooting? I kind of hate that term, but um, it's a police term. If the shooting looks like it's justified, they call it a good shooting. You know, as I got older and went further in my career, I hated that because any shooting, somebody get hit with a bullet, it's not a good shooting. But in the police world, so two people will have a cop will have a shooting with somebody. He gets shot. There's an investigation. You know, the chief comes. They want a briefing, and once it's investigated, says it's a good shooter. That's what that means. Why did you tell us about your uh, personal life? I mean, you you talking. Correct me if I'm wrong about this, but you talk about having two women in your life early in your life, pregnant at the same time. Mm -hmm. Tina, is that a real name? Yes. Yes. And Teresa. Yes. And you married Teresa. Yes. But those children were born to each of those women around the same time? And yes. you you Six were in attendance apart. above it? Yeah. Six months Why do you apart. tell us about that? 
because I wanted to be transparent and real. Like I, I put my life out there, and like some of the things, some family members, some friends are not happy about it. But the only way I could be able to come on C-SPAN and do all these other shows is to be real and honest with people. Because that's one thing people understand is honesty. When you're honest with people, then they believe in you. What was the story? And I'm, I may have this happened twice in your life, though, didn't it? You had two yes. different. When was the second time? You, you, how long were you married to Teresa? Uh, about eight, nine years. How many children did you have by Teresa? Just one. What's that person's name? Natasha. That's Natasha. And you call her Tosh? Yes. Yeah. And, and the Tina had one child. Corey Junior. Corey Junior. Where's Corey Junior today? Yeah, he's in Queens. He's still in Queens. How's he doing? He's doing fine. You in touch with him? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Which one of those two women, by the way, was the most upset when they found out that th about the other one? Hey, you flip a coin on that. <laughs> he would probably flip a coin. I mean, I was living this double life as a teenager. I had a girlfriend in Queens cheating on the one in Brooklyn. So the one in Brooklyn thought she was my girlfriend, but I really had one. So, you know, when they both found out, it was pretty upset. Now, as you told us earlier, you have a tattoo with Brendale. Yes. Uh, didn't you have another affair at the same time and have another woman pregnant at the same time Brendale was pregnant? No. 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 No, absolutely I not. misread that one. Yeah, you misread that. I wouldn't be sitting here today. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you say that? Oh, man. She would probably kill me. <laughs> but Brendale had children two. before. Yes, one. Yes. And then you two had how many children two. together? Yes. Yeah. yeah, and you on big happy family. <laughs> where where did you meet Brendale? And how many other people, by the way, in your family are cops? Uh, I met Brendale in the third grade in that picture in the book. Mm -hmm. She's sitting to the left, all the way to the corner with the big bushy hair. <laughs> when did you get with her this for this? Well, really, yeah, for, yeah. after we um, after my divorce from Teresa, so maybe like twenty twenty years after that picture in the book yeah and what does she think of this book well she she likes the book she's not happy with everything in the book but um when did she read it <laughs> honestly i don't think she i don't think she's finished reading it yet you know she's picking and choosing it's very emotional because of all the things that um mostly with the whole new york post thing you know it was very traumatic for her so she don't really want to like involve herself in it but she definitely read like the early parts of the book so you are friends with ll cool j and run dmc well i'm friends with ll cool j and i was friends with jam master j we all grew up in the we grew up in the same neighborhood we all grew up in the same neighborhood you know the ironic thing and i, I talk about that in the book crack and rap it all like came up together it all came up, you know, the rappers back then, they wasn't making big money. The drug dealers was driving the fancy cars. I believe they wanted to be drug dealers. Now, the pendulum swings today, all the, all the crack dealers want to be rappers. So, yeah, LL Cool J, I'm actually on, I have a three or four second cameo on one of his albums, the 14th Shot to the Dome. I was in the you studio were, with You were him. a cop then? Yes. And I you was were doing some you, security for him. Security yeah. for it was that independent of being, uh, you yes. know, in the police. So you're there, and he he puts you in the middle of this. Now we we got that clip. <laughs> 
I haven't heard that clip since that day. Are you well, serious? Let's li- now you got to listen very carefully on this because <laughs> that your. Do you remember what your lines were? I thought you fell off, kid. And this was from LL Cool J's rap song "God Bless." Yes, which you can you can see the whole thing on YouTube. But mm-hmm. you got to listen care- carefully because it comes near the end. Let's just run this so you can explain all this to us. I thought you fell off. I thought you fell off, kid. So he's bragging about what he got. And um, I come in, you know, saying, you basically, I thought you, your people saying you fell off, kid. <laughs> Explain the world of rap and hip-hop. What's the difference between the two? It's all the same. Rap is hip-hop. It's the way you walk. It's the way you talk. It's the way you dress. It's the cars you drive. It's, it's everything. It's, it's what's, all uh, in one. What's your ditty bop? My walk. Did you I ever get rid of it? My diddy bop is a, is probably a diddy boop now because of two back surgeries. It's not the same. But what but was it? Know. Didn't it tick people off from time to time? Yeah. Well, you know, I had this distinctive walk. You know, I grew up. I was in hip hop. You know, everybody is swag. You got the Jay Z, Fifty Cent. They walk. You know, it's the confidence step that you have when you're walking, and it's just a more pronounced than everybody else <laughs> where does the whole thing the bling thing come from and you said in your book that people had so much money they just went out and bought all this jewelry well you know it's all addressed to impress and pretty much for the young guys you know growing up like i grew up it was all to impress the ladies and and let the other guys know that you're making more money than what they're making as you can see now i'm not blinged out i mean i have a little watch on here but uh <laughs> we older now the bling is gone I want to show you a clip from a movie that you talk about in your book, uh, New Jack City. Uh, and, and tell us how close this is to the real world. I think my cousin also likes the fact that you're in the tradition of uh, Joe Kennedy. Who? Good. Because you got to rob to get rich in the Reagan era. They're running a strange program, y'all. I mean, more poor and disenfranchised folks than this place has ever seen. And see, they try to front it off like it don't exist. Meanwhile, the rich get richer and the poor don't get a thing. Times like these, people want to get high. Real high and real fast. And this is going to do it. And make us rich. I mean, what? People going crazy over this? I mean, really, it looked like cracked off pieces of soap. How real is that? Wow. You know, there's a lot of Hollywood to that. But, um, you know, they say that that movie was, you know, largely based on the Supreme team. That's what a lot of people say. And, you know, I'm quite sure. Remember, I was a street hustler, so I wasn't privy to the meetings that Supreme had with his lieutenants and stuff. But I'm pretty sure it was sort of like that. What advantage was it being a cop that you had been a member of the Supreme team? Well, it wasn't just being a member of the Supreme Team. My advantage of being a cop is was just being a young black man growing up in in the city. So I understood like what would go on 
in the, in the city. So police work came fairly easy to me. If they would have threw me in Chinatown, downtown Manhattan, I, it would have been harder for me to navigate. You know, most of my precincts I worked in, except for in Astoria, Queens, um, which is a Greek area, I worked in minority neighborhoods. So I, it was easy for me to fit in. And then as I was going higher through the ranks, I was able to impart my knowledge on the officers that worked for me to tell them, hey, listen, every time somebody in the street call you son, they're not disrespecting you because you're older than them. That's how they talk. They refer to each other as son. You know, so I would just like drop, what do you say, jewels on them and impart knowledge on them. Say, hey, this is just the way that this is how it goes out here. You know, in the suburbs, when they go to the park in the projects, their park are the benches right there. So you, you're going to keep writing them summonses for hanging in the park after dark. They have nowhere else to go. What are we going to do? We're going to keep summonses all day long and they can't even pay the summonses. What are we going to do? So, you know, a lot of police work is common sense and discretion. You have to use it. Do I have the name right? Nishan? Nishan, yeah. Nishan. Mm -hmm. You call it the luckiest thing in my life. The day the gun didn't fire. Explain that story. Yeah, so that was probably December 12th or December 13th, 1986. My son was born on December 12th, Corvette Jr. And it was either that day I came home or the next day. I get off, I come from Brooklyn, I go back on the block because, you know, I'm happy. My son is born. And then Sean walks up to me, pulls a pistol out and hits me in the head and tells me, get off the block. You can't, you can't hustle down here no more. And so, you know, I left. Obviously, he had a gun. I, I ran. I went home for two days and thought about what I was going to do because back then it was all about street credibility or street cred, as they would say, it was slang. And so I had to, you know, get my revenge. And so I decided I was going to kill him myself. And the gun that I had, I had a nice little nickel-plated twenty-five, And I went down there two days later. And I was, like, so crazy back then that I said, I want to do this in front of everybody. And I want to do it 3 in the morning, 8 in the morning. I'm going to go at prime time about 6 o'clock where everybody's out there. And I'm going to kill him right in front of everybody for hitting me in the face with the gun. So I walked down there. And lo and behold, he walked right up to me. Didn't I tell you? And I pulled the gun out and put it in his chest. And I pulled the trigger three times and it don't go off. And he pulls his gun out and starts shooting at me. I run. And a friend of mine... DJ turned a corner, saw what was happening. He pulled his gun out, started shooting at him, and he ran into another friend's house, and we wanted him out of the house. We was going to do something to him, but my friend's mother wouldn't let, him come, let us come in the house. What happened that the gun didn't fire? Because we were so young and crazy and running around the street, I didn't know anything about guns. It was a, a semi-automatic. I never racked a slide to put a bullet in the chamber, so I... It was no bullet in the chamber, so I couldn't fire the gun. So it's safe to assume that if that gun had fired, you would not be sitting here today. Right. Definitely. Without a doubt. Did you ever sh shoot somebody? Uh, it's, it's some stories in the book. Can't give away everything <laughs> in the book. You got to get them to read something in the book. I had some brushes with guns. Yeah. I want to show you a clip of you in a barber shop. And those folks that go to movies, there's Barbershop 1 and Barbershop 2. Mm -hmm. Let's watch this. And you're sitting, getting your hair cut, and listen to the dialogue between you and the barber. 
But you can't blame that on your own police. No, but no, but society, society is, is, is printed the same way. Like if you ever did jury duty, it go by. You come up there, you got a hat on, you got the braid, or you sagging. To the jurors, they're like, yo, he did it. They don't care what the what the case is. They don't care what the charge is. They looking at you. So what you well, think? a certain kind of way. But the elephant in the room is this with Tim is you're not hitting on this. I don't care about no jury dude. These cops are getting a hundred thousand no, dollars. Hold on, what I'm saying is you dress. No, but it don't know what I'm saying. What Tim what the deal is, it shouldn't play a part because these cops are getting a hundred thousand dollars. Hold on, let me get the point out. They get the training and they're not supposed to discriminate based on race, green, color, sexual, right. It's almost human nature. Can you uh, fill in the blanks on what that's all about? <laughs> yeah, so that's my YouTube web series, Barbershop Cop, um, that I'm, I'm filming some shows going around New York City, barbershops all over, talking about real issues that's affecting the community and getting feedback, real feedback. See, so that's that's live stuff right there. That's not scripted. I'll just throw out a topic. Well, what do you think about Stop Question and Frisk? And we just start talking about it. It's not scripted, as you can see. And this is good stuff so that America see, like, how young black men feel about cops and law enforcement in general. So what the point that I was trying to make there with that particular situation was that cops are getting paid 100000 You know, when I say this, I'm talking about NYPD, uh, definitely over $100,000 a year, um, to make sure that they're not discriminating against people. So, like, I would tell my cops every day, you know, check your attitudes at the door. Yeah, I know you just had a domestic violence incident with your wife, but you're going to have to come to work and handle six of them. Can you do it? You have to look at everyone as an individual one. You know, people look to the police for everything. Cat in a tree, police. Car accident, police. Somebody shot, obviously, police. Drug dealer, police. Everything, police. So you're asking somebody that's... 19, 20 years old in most jurisdictions, six months of training, never lived out of their mother's basement, give them a gun and a badge and say, go conquer the world. He has to do all of that. He never even had a, a girlfriend. He got to handle a domestic dispute. It's a tough job. And, you know, I criticize police a lot, but when I criticize, I'm talking about the bad police. And that's a small percentage. Overwhelming majority of the cops, they're just coming to work doing their job, but you don't hear about them. You hear about the, you know, the Tamir Rice, the, the Aragona cases, the key girl in the pink eye. You hear about the bad cops or bad policing. And once law enforcement start weeding them out, because every time you see one of these cases, an unarmed black man get killed, you look at the, the person's background, seven complaints of use of force, five substantiated, he's been cursing. It's, the guy was a mess. And we don't find out about it till they kill somebody. So what are you doing prior to they kill somebody? When they curse somebody out, we should be handling it from the jump. Where does your last name, Pagese, come from? Well, it has French origins. Yes. But I trace my roots to North Carolina. Yes. And you say in your book your dad was an alcoholic? Yes, my dad was an alcoholic. He was a functional alcoholic. He went to work every single day, but he drank every day. Every day? Every day he drank. Yeah. What year of your life did he die? Third grade. No, no, no. My, my father, I'm sorry, he left in the third grade. He died my second year as a police officer. He actually came to my police graduation. It was one of the happiest days that I had with my father. He told me he loved me that day. And I haven't, I, I never even heard him say that. But he told me that day. What, what's the different feeling for you if 
the guy sitting here asking you the questions is black versus a white guy. It doesn't matter. It's, see, I don't base the things on race, it's, unless it's quite obvious to me there's a racial component to it. Uh, I'm comfortable in any settings. I have white friends, Spanish friends, black friends. Um, you know, it's just when people show me racism, it kind of pisses me off. It pisses me off big time because there should be no room for that. And I, I know what I'm made of, and I know that, you know, I stand on the back of the three M's, Malcolm, Martin, and Megan, in any particular order. If they didn't fight for civil rights, I wouldn't be to be able to stand here in this billion-dollar company and have this interview. So I, I feel very strongly about race. Let me America. ask that a different way. Do you notice a difference in the questions that a white interviewer will ask you versus a black interviewer? Not necessarily. Now, when you talk about the Combat Jack show, it's a hip-hop podcast, so, you know, it was a lot more loose, no suit and tie, you know, I probably had a Yankee hat on to the back. It's a whole different environment, but these type of interviews, I mean, I go on interviews, somebody want to take a shot at me, they can try. It's kind of hard to take a shot at that book because everything is better than that book. And you can fact check everything in there, unless you're going to tell me I didn't have holes in my shoes. I mean, <laughs> you see me holding them, I definitely had holes in my shoes. So what's the question you're asked all the time and all your as you do this book tour? How did I become a police officer while selling crack cocaine? Yeah. And what would you say? You say in the book that you never missed a day of school? Mm -mm. I that did you not. didn't use drugs? Nope. <laughs> I didn't use drugs, believe it or not. And like my little team around me all was like smoking. I didn't smoke marijuana. I didn't smoke marijuana. That was a big thing. I've even very rarely, we used to drink 40 ounces of beer, old English Coke 45 and stuff like that. I very rarely did that. I was so money hungry. I just wanted to make some money, be able to take care of myself, didn't want to waste my money, you know, help my girlfriend. Um, I, didn't, I didn't mess with none of that. I never smoked a cigarette in my life. Still haven't? No. I smoke a cigar once in a while. I had one last night. <laughs> So what does Corey Pegues want to do for the rest of his life? For the rest of my life, I just want to go out and spread my message because I, I believe I have a transformational story that can touch the lives of some of these kids. And I want to start a nonprofit. What's best for me is opening a, a computer center down there on 198th Street in Murdoch and, you know, have financial literacy classes for these kids and try to help these kids because they're hurting out there and they need somebody. And the main thing is when they see me, they see somebody that looked like them that did it. And I can go to any community, right? My college campuses. I want to get on these campuses and talk to these kids because a lot of kids are going through things and they think that there's a dead end. And I'm here to tell them you can make it. Is there a website that people can go to? Yes, CoreyPegues.com. They can find me on my website. They can hit me on Twitter, CPegues, Instagram, CPegues. And um, I'm all over the internet. Google my name. <laughs> Everything pops up. We'll show the cover of the book so people can see the spelling of your name. The title of this book is Once a Cop, subtitled The Street, The Law, Two Worlds, One Man, Corey Pegues. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
free transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at qnda.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts. 